it is okay for you to have joy. Know deep within your heart that your God is the very God of joy, and He desires for you to have joy. Furthermore, God gives you permission to have joy. The master of creation, he spoke the world into existence that it would be good, that it would be beautiful and even filled with joy. Now, horribly, when we look around us right now in the day and age that we're in, it's very obvious that the possessive spirit that is attempting to destroy our culture, it desires for us to be sad. It desires that we be demoralized, and that's a very particular word. It wants for us to be depressed. It comes seizing and convulsing our culture as it demands for us to surrender before it, to, to bow down and be miserable. It wants us to feel guilty for unreasonable accusations and things beyond our control. Now, despite this, we have a great alternative, and it is a beautiful, great alternative. And it is, in fact, the, the greatest of all alternatives, for it is the holy gospel of our Lord Christ Jesus. Now, although we do not see him in his fullness right now, when we are believing in him, we may rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. There are so many spiritual battles that are going on right now in our world. I want us to realize we cannot lose the battle of joy. And now that's a little detail that we may not be thinking about right now, but it is one that is so important. And perhaps you are thinking about it. You are racked with a lot of the, the frustration and depression that comes to plague us. There is a battle over joy and we cannot lose it. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor here at Kingdom of the Logos, and let's open up in prayer, and then we're going to get into our examination of Nehemiah chapter 8. We won't read that chapter till about halfway through our message today, but let's go ahead and take a deep dive into joy. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that you come and be with each and every one of us, Lord, wherever we may be across the internet, across the, the various geographies to which we live. Lord, I pray that you come, send your Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds, that we would receive your strength, that we would have a firm backbone, that we would not be discouraged by the things around us, but that we would find peace and joy that only comes from you. Lord, we thank you so much for the wonderful gifts that you're giving us. Lord, we just thank you for all the, the wonderful beauties that you have given us here as we walk on this terrestrial domain. Lord, let us have our eyes on things above and not distracted by the mere things which come to plague the soul. We thank you for dying for us, that we could find great joy, though it came at such an enormous cost. We ask all of this through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we jump right into our, our message today, I want to I begin by saying joy is not the same thing as the basic impulses of happiness or pleasure. Instead, joy is something that is quite different. Joy is the payment given to a meaningful investment from one's life. To experience lasting joy, because again, a lot of times people, they, they actually do find joy, but they, they squander it or they lose it. To maintain lasting joy, to experience that, is to invest in something with your heart and your mind and to accomplish something of meaning. When we consider the parable of the talents, we, we find that joy, it is something which is not free. But the slaves who choose to be productive with their master's talents, they are given access to joy. And it's quite particular how the scripture words this. Only through an investment of the talents, only through that investment is entrance given to the worthy slave. Now that really is fascinating. It, it really is. And let's take a look at that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 23, where it states, His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And again, that joy, it was not free. It required an investment and 
for that slave, permission was given for, for them to enter into joy. And that's very, very fascinating to read that. And as we even continue looking at the Matthew account of the gospel, we find that joy, when you even go to the cross and you see how the disciples are, are responding to that, you can look there in Matthew 28 and find that the joy that was purchased for the disciples, that it came at that enormous price of the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is the very word of God, the logos of creation, who is both fully God and fully man. And looking there to the gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 7 and 8, it reads, Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead. Indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. And this is my message for you. And so they left quickly. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Now such costly joy came with fear. As John writes in his third epistle, you look there in the, the third epistle of John, chapter 1, four, verse 4, he writes, I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You know, we read through that, that simple line there out of John's third epistle. You know, no sincere Christian here in our modern day and age should have a problem understanding that this scripture really has a very literal meaning. You know, so often we, we have these pushes and pulls between how do we interpret Scripture? Is it very literal? Is it being something which is more of a, a record? Is it something like a psalm? Is it being poetic? We have all these questions about how Scripture is to be interpreted. But when we look to something like this in 3 John 1, 4, where it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the light. In our modern day and age, we should have no problem interpreting this to be very, very literally. Because when we look around right now to see that the children, they are walking in the truth. That is what brings joy to John. When we look around our world right now, we see that there are so many people who walk outside of the truth. There are people who walk in mockery of the truth. And even people who walk so arrogantly as they ignore the truth as they walk across this earth. You know, God is holy because he is. And the truth, truth itself is beautiful because it is. There is a great reward from investing in truth. Moreover, there is great joy in walking in the truth. Now, keep in mind that Christ Jesus himself, he stated there in the gospel according to St. John, chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. Truth is utterly essential to the Christian worldview. And Christ-like love, when we see people, when we see people who are, who are walking and they are wrapped up in the chaos of this earth, you know, God does not want people to be walking in the darkness. Here on Wednesday nights, I've been preaching out of the, the book of Revelation, and we saw the beast worship there. God does not want people to be just indulging in beast worship in darkness, but God wants people to have joy. And Christ-like love, if we're to be the church who exemplifies Christ-like love, we have to realize that Christ-like love and compassion for people means we don't want them to be just wrapped up in beast worship. We don't want them to be, you know, living in the darkness, walking outside of the truth. We want people to step into truth and discover its joy. Now, as I've said a few times, joy is beautiful. And like many beautiful things, it is connected to both sorrow and labor. You know, we tend to think that beauty is something that is undefinable, but I don't think that's the case at all. I think we can simply define beauty as, as an approximation to truth. The closer something gets to a truth of God's creation, whether it be the truth of our form as men and women, the truth of virtue, or even music, 
we can see that such things get more and more beautiful. The closer that something is to a truth of creation, a fundamental piece of creation's architecture, that's the more beautiful it is. And that's generally how we respond to things in the world, whether it be athletics, whether it be music, whether it be any sort of movement towards a, a truth of God's creation, even in a beautiful story, the closer it is to that, the more beautiful it is. And when we take an examination of joy itself, it is a beautiful thing. And the closer we get to beauty, the more our souls experience joy. And joy and beauty, they are often coupled with sorrow. You know, we don't feel sad over meaningless things, and neither do we find beauty in meaningless things. Things are only worthy of joy if they are worthy of sorrow. And that's something you have to remind yourself of. If we're going to be investing of things that have a long-lasting effect, you know, they're only worthy of, of joy, they're only worthy of 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 sorrow if they have some deeper meaning with them. If it's something which is shallow, you can discard it quickly, it's probably not going to bring you any lasting joy. Something is only worthy of sorrow if it is also worthy of joy. And the inverse is also true. You know, a lot of times we, we look at movies and things throughout the, the history of the, the church and how art has been used to portray things. There's a phenomenal scene in the 1956 Ten Commandments movie starring Charlton Heston. And I know it's almost cliche to refer to Charlton Heston as Moses, but there's a phenomenal scene where Moses is standing on the mountain declaring, there is no liberty without the law. And he says that before casting down the first set of Ten Commandments stone tablets, which broke, break open a fissure in creation to consume those who have idolatry, idolatrously rejected God's order. And it's true. You know, that scene, it so well articulates you cannot have liberty without the law. And creation itself will fight against you and consume you when you, you don't see the world clearly, when you've done idolatrous things. It's true that one cannot have liberty without the law. However, we must not be shallow in our understanding of these words. And really, when you understand what that scene is, is trying to communicate, you know, there's no morality without the law. For people, they're not naturally good, but instead, people are naturally sinful. There is no morality without the law because there's no certainty. There's no certainty between what is, what is good and evil. And that's simply because we don't naturally have that internal desire to, to know the difference between good and evil. It's something which is, is learned. That's something which even Adam and Eve, they, they discovered, albeit through the sinful process that was not the, the process that God had designed for them. They, they went outside of God's order to learn about good and evil, and it, and it caused a, a lot of chaos. You know, when there is no law, there's no morality. And when there is no morality, there's no certainty. And when there is no certainty, there can be neither joy nor meaning. And this reduces people down to nothing but mere static fixtures, statistics to be quantified as survival rates and polling numbers. You know, the destructive spirit of our age wants us to be demoralized. And I know I used that word earlier in the sermon. Let me clarify what that means. When you are demoralized, it means that you are uncertain in your morals, and therefore you are disabled from seeking truth. You're not going to be living with meaning. There will be no honor and there will be no joy. When you demoralize a people, you kind of make them apathetic to everything. They don't have moral certainty. They're not going to be crusaders who go out and fight for a cause with conviction unless it is one of those things which are ordained by the prevailing, you know, idolatrous worldview and they give people very evil convictions to act upon. And it's not something which is moral and noble, but something which is destructive. The, the demoralization process really is this process which turns a people 
into a, a confused people who don't know who they are, what they are, and they're not willing to stand up for truth. And we see that all throughout our, our culture in a whole variety of ways. But rest assured, you were not made in the image of God to merely be a statistic or a polling number, but a unique living creature with a valuable will that would navigate this terrestrial domain, doing great and noble things that proclaim the glory of your maker. Nehemiah, he did not record the households in his territory because they are their survival rate. He doesn't do that. But he records their names and their households because it was important to him that they found meaning and no longer lived in shame. That is the whole pretext for Nehemiah's revival. Nehemiah sees what the state and condition of the people of God are, and he realizes that it is shameful to live this way. And he goes before his God, who is awesome and all-powerful. He prays, he fasts, and then he acts when no other man is willing to do so. You know, he doesn't do this because he just sees the people of God as a survival rate. And in fact, if he saw things as a survival rate, he'd probably be pretty happy there in the, the citadel there in Susa. We are much more than a survival rate, much more than a polling number. And our world right now wants to reduce, reduce us down to polling numbers and survival rates. But that is so sad. God didn't descend from the thunderous throne of heaven to merely increase your survival rate, but to free you from all that brings misery and chaos, all that brings chaos to the world and suffering. And not that there would be a human-designed utopia, but that God would redeem, that he would bring restoration to his own creation, to renew your mind because your mind is important, your mind, your will, the circumstances of your life, they're very important to God. You know, he came to give you a liberty beyond the frailties of fallen creation. And our world right now doesn't want to see you as a unique individual who has personal circumstances worth having. Instead, people are treated as polling numbers, survival rates, statistics, and it's very, very terrible. Things that can always be quantified and measured. You know, joy itself cannot be quantified, but nonetheless it is real and it is objectively real. It can neither be, be put into a, a polling number nor a survival rate, but neither can liberty or any of other of the gods the, the virtues that God has given us. God's virtues, they cannot be quantified in this way. Yet, our world desires us to be quantified as statistics. And when you actually understand what the word statistic means, it has the same root as the word static. Um, the Latin stat or stit means to stand. And it means to exist as a fixture in a, in a fixed state where one does not move. You don't do anything that really is living or breathing. You're not really existing as a, as a you know, sentient life-born that has agency, but instead you just exist as something which stands still lifelessly like a statue. You know, whenever people are reduced to statistics, they, they have no meaning and joy in life. And this is a great, great evil. To demand that people be statistics and static is evil. It is. You know, the holy virtues of God, they don't come to us and say, you know, they, that say they get to be suspended. The principles of God, the, the laws of human behavior, don't get to be suspended in the middle of a crisis. In fact, they become ever more important during a crisis, not to be shirked or set aside. There is no joy without the law. And what then is the power of the law, and how did it factor into Nehemiah's revival? Now, if, if Charlton Heston, as Moses, gets to say that, and even I myself repeating that, there's no liberty without the law. What really is the law and how is it so important to Nehemiah's revival? Because that's what we're going to see happening there in Nehemiah chapter 8. They read the law in a meaningful way and then the people have festivals. Well, the law of God, and that's generally referred to as law with a capital L. The law of God is truly much more than a list of do's and don'ts. For it is a metric with which one weighs the world. 
It's like the clothing of animal skins given to Adam and Eve, who had tried to, you know, cover themselves with a, a fig here or there. But it's not something which is meant to hinder people, but to enable them. And that's something which we cannot forget. The world wants to tell you that the clothing is a hindrance, but it's not. It actually allows you to survive and go further in a dangerous world. The world desperately wants you to be naked without anything to to help you survive or to help you endure a meaningful life. Again, the world might want you to be a survival rate, but if that's the case, then you can just go sit in a cave somewhere um, nakedly and not do anything. But God wants people to, to not just be a, a survival rate, but he wants them to go out and live, to endure, to be able to persevere through the toils and snares of fallen creation and do great and noble and honorable things in the world around us. Now, the law is something that is like this. It is a tool like those animal clothing. It gives people clarity on good and evil. It gives them sight to go further and pursue higher things. And that is something that we cannot forget. So we're, we've gone a, a few <laughs> verses into this um, um, book of Nehemiah so far. And let's go ahead and, and finish out chapter 8 today, shall we? So we're going to be beginning right in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And this is where we find Ezra reading the law and the people starting to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacle or Festival of Booths. So let's begin. Nehemiah 8. All the people, they gathered together into the square before the water gate, and they told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And accordingly, the priest Ezra, he brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all could hear with understanding. Now, this was the first day of the seventh month. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and women, who those who could understand, and all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, what we see happening, just take a break from the scripture before we pick up in verse 4. Keep in mind, the people, they had been spread out all over the earth. They had lived in shame. Jerusalem had been ruins. And many of them are not familiar with the law. When you see this happening, Nehemiah's revival, it is not one that is just for a, a select group of people, but all men and women and anyone who can hear, they are invited into the square that they might learn. And this is a very, very important thing. And Nehemiah, he and Ezra, as they lead this revival, they're not doing this just to check some boxes, but they want to actually bring something meaningful into people's lives. They're not here just to, to get through an, an election. They're not here just to, to get through a current crisis. They're actually trying to do something which has a lasting effect on everybody who is involved. And that's such a beautiful thing. Ezra, as he teaches, he is doing it with understanding in mind. He's trying to teach the law in a meaningful way. He's not just up here reading out of the, the phone book, doing something that people have to tolerate. So in verse 4, the scribe Ezra, he stood on a wooden platform that had been made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shemaiah, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his Meshulam and it's on his left. Oh, excuse me, on his right hand. And then there was Padiah, Mishael, Mazkiah, Hashum, Hasbadom, Zechariah, and those with Meshulam were on his left hand. And Ezra, he opened the book, and in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra, he blessed the Lord, the great God, and all of the people answered, Amen, Amen. And they lifted up their hands, they bowed their heads, and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And now also there was Jeshua, Bani, Sherbiah, Jamin, Hakur, Shebatiah, Habdar, Maseah, Keltiah, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites. 
and they helped with the people that they might understand the law. And while the people remained in their places, so they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense. They gave sense so that people could understand the reading. And now this is a beautiful thing. And Nehemiah is particular in his memoir. He records people's names, not just because he wants to have some sort of technical or legalistic mentality, because that's not the way he governs at all. You read through this whole book, Nehemiah is a crusader for the principles of God. And it's important to him that the principles of God come to as many people as possible. And this is such a, a beautiful thing. This is, this is something which God had desired for, for his men and women all along. This is what it fundamentally is, means to live out that, that calling that was given to Abraham and Sisera. That once you received a blessing, you would do something with it for others. That was the whole purpose of having a set-apart people. Nehemiah understands this. Ezra understands that. And even those who are the other Levites, you know, they're walking around with the people that as the law is being taught, they understand it in a meaningful way. They don't want people just to be listening to this with, with deaf ears, but to understand it and really apply it in their life. And that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And in verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the scribe and priest, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This is the day. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them for those whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The people, they've lived for generations without really understanding the law. They've lived in shame. They've been in decay and destruction, and the world wanted them to remain in decay and destruction. But Nehemiah, he leads this beautiful revival and when they suddenly have a moment of self-awareness, realizing where they're at, they start to weep. And Nehemiah, he comes and says, do not be sad. Ezra, he comes and he, he looks at them and says, have joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's beautiful, 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 beautiful. And picking back up in verse 11, so the Levites stilled all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the ancestral houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites, they came together to the scribe Ezra in order to study the words of the law. And they found that it was written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the people of Israel should live in booths during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their towns in Jerusalem as follows. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. And so the people, they went out and bought them. They made booths for themselves, each with the roofs of their houses and in the courts and there in the courts of the house of God and at the square at the water gate and the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and they lived in them. For from days of Jeshua, son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel had not done so, and there was a very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the festival seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. And so that's Nehemiah chapter 8. The people have joy. 
And joy is so important to us. We cannot lose the battle of joy. We look at everything going on. There's all these destructive forces. We must be a people of revival. We must be a people of backbone. We must be a people who pick up a sword in one hand and a trial in the other. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. And this is something which is found throughout the biblical truths. You know, what we see here in Nehemiah 8 is they, they start to have the festivals. And the festivals themselves, they are a part of the law. And God sees it as necessary that people have joy. And he even gives commandments regarding the taking of time for joy. You know, the people in Nehemiah 8, they celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles, which you may have heard this called Sukkot or the Festival of Booths. Those are different names for the same festival. And even though this was an ordinance, you know, there would be times and periods where when people, they had been in exile, they didn't actually follow through with this. They didn't even know that there was a time set aside to have joy. Now, this is a, a great time of the harvest. And when the people, they come together to celebrate the great achievement of a long work and do it in the fields, you know, it's a good time. It's a time which usually comes towards the fall. And by the way, in the church, we used to have our spring and fall revivals. They were actually meant to be lined up with these festivals. The Festival of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booths, a lot of times that translated into um, revivals and things here in the Protestant world in America. But back to what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 8, the people, they come together, they assemble in their booths, they make shelters to celebrate in, and this is a time when work is forbidden. Now, this isn't some idea where people are encouraged to be lazy and they say, oh, well, you know, I can't work. Therefore, oh, there's a law of God that says you can't work. No, 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 no. This is not that at all. Work is not forbidden because work is bad, but because the work has been accomplished. The work has been endured. You know, every year there's this whole crop that people have to go out and do this hard manual labor to, to achieve. And this is at the tail end of that, where all the people, they have invested their individual energy. They have put their time, their families, you know, energy together in this they've invested in it and now all of that has come to fruition it's a time of great joy and it was something that was missing from the people who had lived through generations of despair and shame and once again they discovered joy there's so many things that are discovered in nehemiah you know nehemiah he discovers what it means to be a man he discovers what it means to have a backbone he discovers what it means to say no but the people they learn what it means to not be in shame they learn what it means to have meaningful lives, and they discover joy. Joy cannot be separated from truth and meaning. When people lack meaning, they cannot have lasting joy, and that's just a, a truth of human behavior. Whenever people are without lasting joy, they cannot truly have meaning. You know, these things, they work in a reciprocal fashion. When people are without the law, they are demoralized. They don't have any sort of conviction to do something that, that will allow them to, to be conquerors, to be people who, who go out and do things that are crusading for good. They, they don't crusade for good when they are demoralized. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra gives the people meaningful instruction of the law. He wants them to clearly see the distinctions between good and evil. He wants them to see the difference between beauty and ugliness so that people can find joy. And all of these things, they are connected. And we might tell ourselves, well, how can you have joy in the midst of persecution? Well, the Holy Scriptures, oftentimes they are writing about joy in the middle of persecution. You know, joy, it can be found in the middle of persecution. But that can only be done in conjunction with the law. There cannot ever be joy without the lines being drawn between good and evil, between that which is ugly and that which is beautiful, without a clear image of all that is noble, beautiful, and good. Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Moreover, Christ did not die and resurrect for us that we would be sad, but that instead we would find an indescribable joy. 
There are so many spiritual battles going on in our world right now. We cannot lose the battle of joy in our hearts. It is important to God that you have joy in your heart. And if we are to be a people of revival who have a backbone and stand up to great evils, then we must be a people of joy. Nehemiah knew this. Jesus taught this. The apostles employed this. And we in our age, we must discover this. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Moreover, there is no law against such things. In other words, there's no reason by God that you should not have these things. Now, there's several particularities of this fruit worth mentioning that we find there in Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the Spirit. And it goes into verse 23 as well. First, this is a singular fruit. In other words, it's not a variety of fruits that can be cut off. You can't cut this fruit of the Spirit apart and say, well, I like love, but I don't like peace. Or I like joy, but I don't like patience. I like generosity, but I don't like self-control. You know, this is a singular fruit, and it's not to be cut apart. You always get heresy and evil whenever people want to start cutting these things apart. Second, as warm and fuzzy as those words sound, you have to keep in mind that when these words were given to the church, when these were given to Christians, they were during a time of great persecution, when Christians, including children, were being stoned, they were being beheaded, boiled, melted, forced to die as gladiators, and martyred in all sorts of manner. When you look at what's going on in the church during the book of Acts, and then you look at the successive generations of, of church history, it is a violent Roman world. It's not a cute and fuzzy time where everything is easy to, to have such self-control. But the fruit of the Spirit, it exists as a stark contrast to fallen creation. Now, the destructive spirit of our culture, it demands that we have neither the law nor joy. And it's easy to see this. Look at the world around us right now. It doesn't want you to have the law, nor does it want you to have joy. It doesn't want you to have any law and order or any joy or happiness. It wants you to be demoralized. And this destructive spirit, this idolatrous God of the age, and that's with the lowercase g, it is blasphemously declared good to be evil and evil to be good. And despite such horrible facts of our time, God tells us to have joy. Let us not squander or lose our joy as both the world and the deceiver wish, but instead let us kindle the flames of the gospel and make use of the talents that God has given us. Whenever we lack joy, the accuser has a victory. Now we must remember that our God is a God of liberty. Our Lord said himself in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim to the release of the captives and recover the sight of the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, of course, what Jesus is saying there in Luke 4, it is, you know, going all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, going back to the sentiment found throughout the Old Testament, our God is a God of liberty. Liberty is a Christian and godly virtue. And these words, they are words of freedom and truth. God desires people to be free and to see truth. And just as one cannot have joy unless they, they walk in the truth, one cannot be free unless they walk in the truth. If they're not willing to see truth, then they're not going to ever really be free. Now, God cares about you, and he cares about all that happens in your personal life. He doesn't simply want you to be a slave, a statistic that serves him in the polls. God sees you as a creature of value one worth transforming and investing in. If God was willing to serve up his own life to invest in you, 
then we should value how important it is for us to joyously walk in his truth. You know, James chapter 1, verse 25, it reminds us that those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget and doers, instead, we are doers who act. Those, they will be blessed in their doing. You know, this blessing that happens for those who, who look into the law, they look into the law of liberty, then they persevere. They're not hearers who forget, but doers who act. They find blessing. And this blessing, it is a lasting happiness in the soul. You know, in English, we have the word makarina, makaria. It comes back from that Greek. It means to to have joy. It's a, it's a lasting happiness. It's not a momentary fleeting pleasure. It's not a momentary satisfaction, but something which endures. The possessive spirit that is bringing destruction on our world right now, we have to realize that it's not genuine in what it wants us to do. We don't want to be puppets doing whatever the possessive spirit wants us to do. Whenever it plays its flute, whenever it, it mourns or wails, that we go along with it dancing and wailing and mourning. You know, the possessive spirit is not being genuine when it demands that we sit down and we have conversations on issues in our moment, whether these be issues or topics like race or a virus. You know, the spirit like Sambalot and Tobiah, this, the spirit, it is like Sambalot and Tobiah in that it calls us down to the valley. But when you read through the book of Nehemiah, they say something to try to get Nehemiah to come down to the valley, but really they just want to destroy him. Whenever we sit down and we have the conversations with people who are disingenuous, and when you look at their fruits across time, they are, are clearly marked as being disingenuous. Whenever you sit down and you try to... to sort that out on their terms you're trying to thread a camel through the eye of a needle and you're only giving power to to the deceiver and you're only giving power to the forces of destruction you know we don't have to sit down with people who have clearly identified themselves as being disingenuous that's not how christ-like love tries to to change hearts you know whenever the the pharisees and sadducees are calling jesus beelzebub jesus doesn't turn around to the disciples and tell them that the disciples that they are the people who are the brood of vipers he doesn't do something like that instead Jesus deals with people circumstantially different, and he realizes that the way you open people's eyes um, is by serving the, the will of the Father, not by serving the narratives of people who are trying to bring your destruction. That's not how you love people. That's not how you, you transform people. And, of course, God doesn't want anyone to live in the darkness, but the way you get people out of that is by actually preaching the gospel and being interested in serving the gospel. Loving your neighbor doesn't mean you want to serve their narratives and help them advance their causes. The gospel teaches us to treat people as individuals, and that's so important. Whenever you decide to go down to the valley with Sambalot and Tobiah, they're there to destroy you. But the gospel tells us you don't have to do that because we have principles. When it comes to issues like race and a virus, we know that God teaches us to treat people as individuals and move up towards the way of life. We do not fear death, but instead we invest in meaning. Everything that retains old sins or tells families they cannot be together or families that cannot provide for one another or visit one another when they are sick, everything that would do something like this is out of the darkness. It's evil. Such evils, they prevent people from rising up in noble joy. They prevent people from having honor and beauty in life. And our culture is seized by disingenuous people who want us to come down and dance for their flute whenever it's played, to wail along with them whenever they mourn, and it does this so that we will not be doing the good work of the gospel. Zanbalat and Tobiah, they want to kill you. They always want to kill you. And it's sad, but that's the truth of the matter. The idolatrous spirit says, you know, don't have joy. Hate joy. Hate liberty. 
But God says you love your enemy. That doesn't mean you serve them. That doesn't mean you serve their ideals, but it means you you love them and you try to to find ways to show the light to them. And just to be particularly clear with what I mean when say you don't serve them, you do not help them advance their cause. Christ-like service that we see being taught by Jesus himself is not you go to Rome and help the Romans do their Pax Deorum and have pagan temples and orgies, that you go over there with the Pharisees and help them teach the law incorrectly. That is not the service that Christ gives. Instead, he shows them the truth and offers an alternative. The idolatrous spirit hates joy. But that's enough on that matter. Let's get back to talking about the festival and wrap up our message. When the people looked up to Nehemiah's Jerusalem and the festival happening there, they see a nation that is clearly celebrating in glorious festivals. Nehemiah's Jerusalem is God's Jerusalem, and it's filled with people of honor and joy. These people, they take joy in the presence of their God, and they draw near to his way of living by embracing the liberating gift of the law. It's not a shallow happiness or a momentary pleasure, but a joy that comes at the end of a hard season's labor. And this is a joy that comes from standing up to evil. It came from looking up towards Almighty God. And the joy comes from drawing near to God in His holy nature. And in our modern day and age, when people look to the church, they should see people who have joy despite the efforts of the world to bring misery. Evil wants you to be joyless and demoralized. But don't be. It's okay for you to have joy in life. And it's going to take some work to find joy. It's not going to just be something which you will into existing. It comes with a great investment. It takes a lot of work. Joy is beautiful. We should never forget that. Joy is the reward of meaningful investments in the things of God. And it is a battle we must not lose. May God be with you and bring you joy. So let's close by saying the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, on that note, thank you for joining me. Again, I'm Pastor J. Dillon Proctor here at Kingdom of the Logos. God love you, and have a blessed day.